Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Well, hello. On this edition of the No Restraint Podcast, I'm going to be using a lot of material that I did get off Barry Weiss's free press because the arguments are so compelling and because I know that the majority of people still don't have subscriptions to free press, I try to share as many of the relevant articles as I can. I could never begin to tap into all the great writing that's on this website, but you should subscribe if you want to have all of it available to you. In the meantime, I thank all of the writers, Barry Weiss, Nellie Bowes. Uh, in this day, I thank Peter Savodnik, as well as Neil Ferguson. These are people who add to the public square by being pretty clear about their opinions, but also backing up their opinions with facts and ideas that have been accepted by society for millennia, and some of which may not be acceptable to society but need to be heard in the public square. And I think free press has become the largest public square in a long time. Twitter, of course, or or X, as it is now called, is certainly the town hall that won't go away. This week alone, they restored Alex Jones to the website. And I am a big believer that allowing him to speak won't harm anyone, but it will awaken some of the thinking that's out there and show us just what exactly we should be paying attention to and what we should be speaking up against. In any case, nobody ever thought it was going to be possible to find so many intellectual giants and artistic people use the phrase, yes, but, as in, yes, it's terrible what Hamas has done, but, and by doing that, They've literally turned the perpetrators of this nightmarish attack against Jews into victims and turned the victims into the perpetrators. Nobody wants to believe that it's possible that not one single relevant Muslim nation has stepped up and distanced itself clearly, publicly, and unambiguously from the terror attacks, and then credibly stood side by side with the victims, and that all the Pope the leader of the Catholic Church could manage was a weak, enough, enough, brothers, enough, as well as a few instructions to the Israeli president over the telephone, fitting in very well with the spineless statements issued by most of the Christian clergy. And none of us certainly want to believe that it's possible that the most feminist organizations and all the female activists in the world would so obviously apply double standards 
and show more indignation at sexual assaults in corporate America than at the systemic, barbaric, and lethal rapes of Israeli women and girls by Islamic terrorists, which just shows us that sympathy and solidarity with the victims of sexual violence are a question of your ideology. If your ideology is the same as the victims, then you support them. If not, oh well. And I certainly don't want to believe it was possible that a German government would abstain in the United Nations when the matter up for a vote was a ceasefire, which was so obviously tactical because it paralyzes Israelis' defenses. I still do not understand how anyone can even consider wanting to remain neutral despite at the same time recognizing that Israel has a right to exist as a non-negotiable principle of Germany's reason d'etre. I don't want to believe it was possible that UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres publicly declared that the terror attack by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. And to hear Christoph Huskin, the former ministerial director in the Department for Foreign Policy at the Chancellor's Office under Angela Merkel, and most recently head of the Munich Security Conference, agree with him publicly. Guterres's words, in clearer terms, mean nothing more than that the Jews shouldn't be surprised when they are butchered, or even more clearly, that they have only themselves to blame. And nobody wants to believe it was possible that Emmanuel Macron, first of all, squirmed and then refused to take part in a cross-party demonstration against anti-Semitism because he's afraid of upsetting the Islamist minority in the Paris suburbs. Seeing him do exactly what uh, Michel Holbeck prophetically referred to in his epical novel as submission. I don't want to believe it's possible that a representative survey at Harvard University would show that 51% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 found that the attacks by Hamas can be justified by the grievances of the Palestinians. And it must be emphasized here that those who questioned did not express their understanding or sympathy for Palestinians, but rather their understanding for the racist mass murder of Jews by the Hamas terrorists. These weren't Palestinians per se, these were terrorists. And nobody wants to believe it was possible that the war is being fought and so clearly decided on the internet. Or to be more precise, on social media and in media outlets that are just sometimes instruments of uh, and owned by totalitarian states like Al Jazeera, which is funded by Qatar and now reaches 430 million households. And on the Chinese platform TikTok, which has more than a billion users and is the most important source of information and entertainment, mainly for young people, there were, as of today, 4 million posts under the hashtag Free Palestine and only 53,000 posts with the hashtag Stand with Israel. Facebook had 13 million posts for Free Palestine and only 378,000 posts under the hashtag Stand with Israel. On Instagram, it was 7 million posts for Free Palestine and 267,000 for Stand with Israel. The war is being decided digitally. It's no longer possible to catch up with the dominance that Hamas and its supporters have gained in terms of their propaganda. 
none of us want to believe that it's possible that anti-Semitism would become a top international export in the year 2023. And more than anything else, I don't think anybody wants to believe that it was possible that some of the most renowned and influential elite universities in the world would capitulate to the cultural struggle that's carried out in the name of a woke agenda pushed by students that are increasingly demonstrating a blatantly anti-Semitic mindset, and that of all groups, it is America's intellectuals who are making Austrian-German-Islamist anti-Semitism socially acceptable again. And the sad climax of this development was the hearing in the U.S. Congress last week, at which the presidents of three of the most important universities, Harvard, Pennsylvania, and MIT, were questioned. Against a backdrop of numerous anti-Semitic clashes at these universities, they were asked a very simple yes or no question by Representative Elise Stefanik. She said, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate the university's code of conduct or rules against bullying and harassment? And the answers, given repeatedly, dodged clear statements and were scandalously heartless. And it must be said in the clearest of terms, they were anti-Semitic. It depends on the context. Those questions waffled one after the other. Or they said with icy smiles, the call to genocide would violate the university's rules only if and when it was followed by actions, which means that calling for genocide is okay. And all that is forbidden is to actually carry out genocidal acts. The three-and-a-half-minute video of the hearing in Congress is a historical document of shame. That it did not trigger a global outcry, as well as a cross-party wave of political outrage, can only be interpreted as, sorry, we have better things to do than bother ourselves with then-downplaying calls to the genocide of Jews at the world's most influential universities. The cultural struggle has become a cultural war. The infiltration and dismantling of democracy and an open society is steaming ahead in the academic world. Have we really not learned anything from history? Claudine Gay at Harvard, Sally Kornbluth at MIT should follow Liz McGill at the University of Pennsylvania's example and immediately resign from their offices as president of their respective universities, or they should be fired. I actually prefer that they be fired. And if it doesn't happen by January 1st, all supporters and donors to these institutions should freeze or withdraw funding. And all parents in the world who want to see their children grow up in a free society marked by tolerance and humanity should recommend their children not study at these places of shame. It's too late for me and my children, but I can only pray that my grandchildren will not go there. Instead, I think they should take the president's of all the universities, for a study trip to Auschwitz. And Peter Savodnik had a great piece, and look, I don't have to agree with everybody, but I have to listen to what they say. And he thinks that the University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill should not have been forced to resign. In fact, her resignation, he thinks, is a blow to academic freedom. It amounts to little more than a cave, he said, yet another prominent American institution succumbing to the angry mob. It will also do nothing to make life happier or safer for Jewish students on campuses that were upset with McGill for not taking a more forceful stance against anti-Semitism. It will make 
it worse by making an already illiberal academic environment even more illiberal. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAP Podcast. Podcast.com. Jews always fare better in liberal, pluralistic environments that reward meritocracy. But McGill's resignation will make it easier for Penn to raise money, which is the real reason she's out. The job of the modern university president is not to cultivate souls or elevate educational offerings. It is to reel in huge donations. And that's harder if your brand is tainted with Jew hate. Yes, I understand why the powers that be wanted her out. She stood up for free expression, and in this case, that meant defending the rights of anti-Semites. And let's be clear, the students and professors shouting intifada are anti-Semites, or at best, useful idiots. We have to move beyond the moronic juncture we have arrived at in America in which people are severely punished for offending other people. This is a cancellation, and all cancellations are lamentable and undermining of the Republic. The problem here is McGill faced an impossible dilemma that, to be fair, was not of her own making. For years, universities, lots of them, not just Penn, have been chipping away at the freedoms of students and professors. Case in point, since 2018, Penn has been trying to punish law professor Amy Wax for comments considered racist. When McGill became president last year, she showed no signs of pushing back against the status quo. So the question naturally arises, why is defending the free expression of Jew haters suddenly so important when it wasn't until about five minutes ago? The bold thing, the right thing for McGill to have said in response to Representative Elise Stefanik's question was, we've been doing things wrong here at Penn for a long time, telling people they can't say things that someone else might not like. Starting today, we're done with trigger warnings and safe spaces and microaggressions, and we're dismantling the whole DEI complex at Penn, which, let's face it, is all about censoring wrong thinkers and actually foments anti-Semitism on campus. What's more, I'm putting our students on alert. If you're uncomfortable with being subjected to speech that upsets you, you should go to school somewhere else. We put a premium on debate and argument at Penn, and that demands free expression. Of course, that would have opened Pandora's box, and it would have demanded a fortitude and a moral clarity that McGill, like so many of our so-called leaders in the third decade of the 21st century, seemed congenitally incapable of. That's a shame, but it is the only way we return to our Republican virtue. McGill should have held on to her job, and she should have been pressured by any number of thoughtful alumni or faculty to liberalize the university she was charged with nurturing. Instead, the mob got its scalp, and McGill is almost certain to be replaced by a functionary who will simply lean into the illiberal DEI safetyist complex. Now, I don't agree with Savodnik much, but I will say this. When the Nazis marched in Skokie, I understood the rationale. I'm having a tough time with anti-Semitism, but this debate needs to be open and happening, 
and not behind closed doors, and not only in congressional committees. Niall Ferguson also wrote a piece, and if you believe in the power of higher education to instill morality in young people, then you have obviously not studied the history of German universities during the Third Reich. In 1927, the French philosopher Julian Bende published La Trahison des Clercs, The Treason of the Intellectuals, which condemned the descent of European intellectuals into extreme nationalism and racism. By that point, although Benito Mussolini had been in power in Italy for five years, Adolf Hitler was still six years away from power in Germany and 13 years away from victory over France. But already, Bende could see the pernicious role that many European academics were playing in politics. Those who were meant to pursue the life of the mind, he wrote, had ushered in the age of the intellectual organization of political hatred, and those hatreds were already moving from the realm of the ideas into the realm of violence, with results that would be catastrophic for all of Europe. A century later, American academia has gone in the opposite political direction, leftward instead of rightward, but has ended up in much the same place. The question is whether we, unlike the Germans, can do something about it. For nearly 10 years, I have marveled at the treason of my fellow intellectuals. I've also witnessed the willingness of trustees and donors and alumni to tolerate the politicization of American universities by an illiberal coalition of woke progressives, adherents of critical race theory, and apologists for Islamist extremism. Throughout that period, friends assured me that I was exaggerating. Who could possibly object to more diversity and equity and inclusion on campus? In any case, weren't American universities always left-leaning? Were my concerns perhaps just another sign that I was the kind of conservative who had no real future in the academy? Such arguments fell apart after October 7th as the response of radical students and professors to the Hamas atrocities against Israel revealed the realities of contemporary campus life. That hostility to Israeli policy in Gaza regularly slides into anti-Semitism is now impossible to deny. Can't stop thinking of the son of a Jewish friend of mine who's a graduate student at one of the Ivy League colleges. Just this week, he went to the desk assigned to him to find, carefully placed under his computer keyboard, a note with the words, Zionist Kike, in red and green letters. Just as disturbing as such incidents, and there are too many to recount, has been the dismally confused responses of university leaders. The ones that testified before the House Committee on Education and the Workforce, Claudine Gay from Harvard, Sally Kornbluth from MIT, and of course Elizabeth McGill from University of Pennsylvania. They gave technically correct explanations of how First Amendment rules apply on their campuses if they did apply. Yes, context matters. If all students did was chant from the river to the sea, that speech is protected as long as there was no threat of violence or discriminatory harassment. But the reason Claudine Gay's carefully phrased answers on Tuesday infuriated her critics is not that they were technically incorrect, but that they were so clearly at odds with her record. Specifically, 
her record as Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences in the years 2018 to 2022, when Harvard was sliding to the very bottom of the rankings for free speech at colleges. The killing of George Floyd happened when Gay was Dean. Six days after Floyd's death, she published a statement on the subject that suggests she felt personally threatened by events in distant Minneapolis. Floyd's death, she wrote, illustrated the brutality of racist violence in this country and gave her an acute sense of vulnerability. She was reminded again how even our black Americans' most mundane activities like running can carry inordinate risk. At a moment when all I want to do is gather my teenage son into my arms, I am painfully aware of how little shelter that provides. In nothing that Gay said last Tuesday did she seem aware that Jewish students might have felt the same way after October 7th. In a memorandum to faculty on August 20th of 2020, she wrote, The calls for racial justice heard on our streets also echo on our campus as we reckon with our individual and institutional shortcomings and with our faculty's shared responsibility to bring truth to bear on the pernicious effects of structural inequality. She continued, this moment offers a profound opportunity for institutional change that should not and cannot be squandered. I write today to share my personal commitment to this transformational project and the first steps the FAS will take to advance this important agenda in the coming year. As the great German sociologist Max Weber rightly argued in his 1917 essay on science as a vocation, political activism should not be permissible in a lecture hall because the prophet and the demagogue do not belong on the academic platform. This was also the argument of the University of Chicago's 1967 Calvin Report that universities must maintain an independence from political fashions, passions, and pressures. This separation between scholarship and politics has been entirely disregarded at the major American universities in recent years. Instead, on the most elite schools, they have embraced the kind of institutional change that Claudine Gay has championed, and look at where it has led us. It might be thought extraordinary that the most prestigious universities in the world should have been so infected so rapidly with a politics imbued with anti-Semitism, yet exactly the same thing has happened before. A hundred years ago, in the 1920s, by far the best universities in the world were in Germany. By comparison with Heidelberg and Tübingen, Harvard and Yale were gentlemen's clubs where students paid more attention to football than to physics. More than a quarter of all the Nobel Prizes awarded in the sciences between 1901 and 1940 were awarded to Germans. Only 11% went to Americans. Albert Einstein reached the pinnacle of his profession, not in 1933 when he moved to Princeton, but from 1914 to 1917, when he was appointed professor at the University of Berlin, director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physics, and as a member of the Prussian Academy of Sciences. Even the finest scientists produced by Cambridge felt obliged to do a tour of duty in Germany. Yet the German professoriate had a fatal weakness for reasons that may be traced back to the foundation of the Bismarckian Reich 
or perhaps even further into Prussian history, academically educated Germans were unusually ready to prostrate themselves before a charismatic leader in the belief that only such a leader could preserve the purity of the German nationalist project. Today's progressives engage in racism in the name of diversity. The nationalist the nationalist academics of interwar Germany were at least overt about their desire for homogeneity and exclusion. Marion Weber recalled how in the wake of the 1918 revolution, her husband Max had explained his theory of democracy to the former supreme military commander, General Erich Luchendorf. Do you think that I regard the Schweinieri that we now have as democracy? What is your idea of a democracy then? And Weber said... In a democracy, the people choose a leader whom they trust. Then the chosen man says, now shut your mouth and obey me. The people in the parties are no longer free to interfere in the leader's business. I should like such a democracy. Well, people can sit in judgment later. Rudy Koshar's study of the university town of Marburg in Hesse illustrates the way this culture led German academia toward the Nazis. The mainly Protestant student fraternities already excluded Jews from membership before World War I. In March of 1920, in the turbulent aftermath of the revolution that had overthrown the imperial regime and established the Weimar Republic, a student paramilitary group was involved in a murderous attack on communist workers. In the national elections held four years later, the Volshik Socializer Bloc of which the early Nazi party was a key part, won 17.7% of the Marburg vote. Lawyers and doctors, all credentialed with university degrees, were substantially overrepresented within them, as were university students, then a far narrower section of society than today. To middle-aged lawyers, Hitler was the heir to Bismarck. For their sons, he was the Wagnerian hero Reinsi, the demigod, who unites the people of Rome. Even a man who considered himself a liberal, as Max Weber surely did, was susceptible to the allure of charismatic leadership when the fledgling democracy seemed so weak. Three years after Weber's death in 1920, Germany was plunged into disastrous hyperinflation. For many German academics, Hitler's appointment as chancellor in January 1933 was a moment of national salvation. Right down to the last deepest fiber in myself, I belong to the Fuhrer and his wonderful movement, wrote the Nazi lawyer Hans Frank in his diary after a concert he had attended with Hitler in February of 1937. We are in truth God's tool for the annihilation of the bad forces of the earth. We fight in God's name against Jews and their Bolshevism. God protect us. Such thoughts helped him and many other lawyers to come to terms with a systematic illegality that characterized the regime from the very onset. German academics acted as Hitler's think tank, putting policy flesh on the bones of his racist ideology. This is where we are today, here in America. We are facing the same issues. As Niall Ferguson wrote, Anyone who has a naive belief in the power of higher education to instill ethical values has not studied the history of German universities in the Third Reich. A university degree, far from inoculating Germans against Nazism, made them more likely to embrace it. 
the fall from the grace of the German universities was personified by the readiness of Martin Heidegger, the greatest German philosopher of his generation, to jump on the Nazi bandwagon, a swastika pin in his lapel. He was a member of the Nazi party from 1933 until 1945. Later, after it was all over, the historian Friedrich Meinecke tried to explain the German catastrophe by arguing that excessive technical specialization had caused some educated Germans to lose sight of humanistic values. Thanks for listening to the Snow Restrained Podcast. I hope you'll pass it around and come back for the next one. God bless you, God bless Israel, and God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.